0: I'd like to welcome you, oh future teachers of mindfulness meditation. I'm Tara Brock. And I'm Jack Kornfield. Warm greetings to you. To support you in your training, we've created a special podcast series of the best wisdom teachings from previous years of our teacher training. Now we know that sometimes simply listening and not having to watch a screen is a really good way to open, receive, and learn. The wisdom you'll hear is timeless, so while you may hear references to time, you'll easily connect with the truths that are being shared. May this rich selection of some of our favorite training sessions deepen your understanding of mindfulness and compassion and bring a new dimension to your teaching. We hope you enjoy these special recordings. Many blessings.
1: Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Christy Peoples, and I am a producer here at Sounds True. I'm really excited to be your host for this session. Today, we are extremely grateful to have Thomas Hubel joining us for this special broadcast. Thomas, as many of you might know, is a renowned teacher, author, international facilitator whose lifelong work integrates the core insights of the great wisdom traditions and mysticism, along with the discoveries of science. In this session, it's titled Innate Intelligence and Healing Collective Trauma. Thomas will be sharing about the complexities of being trauma-informed, ways to evolve into trauma-sensing and integrating so that you may better guide your meditation students. We've already got a lot of questions that have come in, so thank you for those. We're also going to have time for Q&A, and I'm going to probably call on a few people to uh, offer their questions as well. So we're going to try and do a mix of questions. Please be sure to use the raise hand function when that time occurs. So without further ado, I want to welcome Thomas.
2: Thank you, Christy. Yes, a warm welcome, everybody. I can see everybody at once, but uh, I'm happy we are here. And um, let's take just since we're all coming from it's night, for most of you it's morning, obviously, or for many, or lunchtime. So let's take a moment to just arrive in this space we're all kind of experienced with the presencing or mindfulness practice. Just a moment to feel the body.
0: Liveness. Right. Also, the fact
2: that we are, that we can sense our space here
0: together, that we can co sense our community. Great.
2: We'll do another longer meditation a bit later. Can you hear me okay? Does that sound good for you? Okay. So when I got the invitation um, to be here today, it speaks to two of my real passions. One passion is meditation itself or mystical practice in its uh, wider form. And um, I by myself was on a four year meditation retreat and uh, meditated since 30 years. So meditation is a deep part of my life. There's another passion that came through my work in facilitating groups and then large scale groups and events around collective trauma. And then, seeing in my also in my students that are studying meditation, seeing the effects of how trauma impacts their meditation practice. And then I thought, "Wow, that's great because that's uh, that combines two of my passions, like healing and and uh, meditation transcendence and mystical practice. And so I want to share a little bit at the beginning with you. Then we'll do a practice, and then we'll have some time for um, questions at the end. I give a, and I'm sure you, you had already some exposure, and many people do have exposure to what trauma means, but just that I define what I mean by that. If somebody goes through an overwhelming, strongly overwhelming experience that overloads the computing power of the nervous system, the nervous system goes into extremely high stress, a fragmentation, and most often into a shutdown. From that moment on, two are generated. It's very important. So trauma creates fragmentation, and fragmentation creates two-ness. And the symptoms of that two-ness is either separation, isolation, distancing, indifference, Absensing, which means not sensing, which is a very important part in the meditation practice, because many people get into dissociated states in their meditation sitting, like in their practice. So how do we deal with those numbed and absent fields that we might tap into when we meditate? And the other one Um, is that there is a high level, a heightened level of anxiety. There's a heightened level of stress. An interesting question for many meditation practitioners is, is how can I quieten my mind? And I would say, if you think a lot, it has not so much to do with your mind. It has a lot to do with the stress levels in your body that are unconscious. So how to tune down or regulate the stress levels in our nervous system that are behind the scenes, not even the ones that I'm aware of, the ones that I'm not aware of. Because stress is an energy that comes up. It's like an energy that shoots into my mind. And it turns on the windmills of thinking. So when I focus on my thinking, I focus on the symptom. That's not at all the point. The point is where is the stress coming from that is turning on my thinking. And that's why in 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 many practices like mindfulness practices, qigong practices, yoga practices, we focus on tuning down or down regulating that chronic stress that became a natural part of myself. It's very important. So Heightened anxiety, heightened stress, heightened uh, restlessness, and the inability to sit down. Because when I sit down, what happens in the mystical practices, in the healing work, in the energetic healing work, we speak of space. Right now we are taking some space for what we are doing here. The space. Meditation is space is witnessing, meditation is creating space. But when we create space, our nervous system says, oh, wonderful, there's space to detox my experience. Because what is trauma? Trauma is postponed experience, it's like karma. Trauma is postponed experience. It's energy that has been split off, but never reintegrated. And I often say, the notion that history is behind us, I think, is wrong. History is in us. Integrated history is looking right now, or listening, or speaking. Integrated history is presence. And presence is seeing. A clear present moment is clear. Why it's clear? Because it's clear. If I'm not sure if it's clear, so I know that it's not clear because I'm asking that question. So that the fact that presence is integrated history, then what we call the past is unintegrated history. Postponed experience. It has been postponed into a future that's needed to integrate it. So when meditation practitioners sit down, often their nervous system says, oh, that's so kind of you to create exactly the circumstances for me to detox my psyche and to detox all the stuff that has never been looked at because there wasn't space. It has been held. If it's a well-mediated meditation practice or a a well-facilitated group experience, the safety level goes up, the incoherence level will go up too. Because once I understand trauma, I say, wow, well, trauma is fragmentation and incoherence. Meditation creates a higher coherence. So when I took large scale groups through processes around integrating the Holocaust, or working on racism, or working on genocide, or working on large scale traumatizations, we could see that every time the group has more safety, more disruption comes up. And if I think as a facilitator that that's wrong, I get stuck. If I I know that that's right, because the nervous system feels safe enough to let go of another level of past pain, I understand human development. And that's true for meditation practitioners also. There are people that meditate, they're in great states, and suddenly something happens, and it looks like we are back to square one, or at least some steps back. And then there is disruption. But coherence is the power to integrate fragmentation. And I think as a trauma-informed facilitator, once I know that. Then I'm an amazing guide to guide people through what we call meditation crisis or, or difficulties in their meditation practice and commitment, because I know the commitment has nothing to do with the meditation. It has something to do with the content that arises in the meditation. So that's, that's one part, and. I just want to pick some highlights because we don't have so much time because it's a big, it's a big topic. The other one I believe that is uh, important to me is that the, the very thing that is so, because the trauma response, not the experience when we go through something very painful, but the, what happens in us in that painful moment is highly intelligent. Life tried this out over a long time, like thousands and thousands of years. And so the me- mechanism of fragmenting is an interesting, powerful, intelligent process. The mechanism of shutting down or numbing is an interesting mechanism. What are we looking at? I often say one definition of healing is the restoration of the original movement. When people are in flow states, they usually don't turn up at their therapist's office. I, people don't come to you and say, "Oh, it's so terrible! I'm in such a flow. It's everything's working great, and I'm in such a peaceful state, and that's why I really need a session with you." Most probably, that's not going to happen. And if it's going to happen, then it's interesting. But it, most probably, people come because yeah, this is stuck, or it's hard for me to meditate, or it's hard for me in this part in my life. Or so, why? Because we always deal with the reduction of movement. Trauma is reduced movement. Flow and potential is original movement. So trauma always creates a tension with the original movement because it's slower than the rest. And so for us, that means that on the one hand, the reduction of movement, or the numbing, or all the defense mechanisms that come out of trauma impacts for a person, or recurrent trauma impacts for some of us that grew up in in those circumstances. First of all, are highly intelligent mechanisms. One of them, I think, is very important for meditation: is absenting. Let's say. Absencing is similar to first time I, I flew to Kathmandu to bring a group of our training a three-year training to the Himalayan mountains for a meditation retreat. I sat on the plane, I looked down onto the city, and I thought, wow. Because in Kathmandu, they turn off the light in a quarter of the city every four hours or something like that. And then I thought, it's so interesting. I couldn't tell you if that black spot at night is a forest, a city, a lake, a mountain. I have no clue. And then I thought, wow, what a genius explanation for the human unconscious. The parts of our nervous system where absenting happened, pulling out of sensitivity, pulling out of conscious awareness, like embodied light, conscious awareness is pulled out because of the pain. Then when I, the self, me on the plane, has no idea what's happening there. So the self, the meditator, has no reference in him or herself. What's actually the process in that absent part? Because there is a process. Same as in the city, when the city is, when you turn off the light, it doesn't mean that there are no people living, living in those houses. There is a process there. So in the human unconscious, there is a strong process, but without awareness. And the question, I believe, for us as meditation teachers is also, how am I aware of that? What's my capacity to deal with my own absence? What's my relational capacity that I see another person is sitting within an absenced field or a dissociated field in him or herself? And then lastly, what is my awareness of the cultural absencing that I have been born into that was there before I was born? So I have been born in Vienna 30 years after the Second World War or something like that. And I grew up in a strange dissonance between numbness, silence, strange phenomena, And nobody explained to me as a boy, Thomas, what you're seeing here and here and here and here and here and here. These are all trauma symptoms. Nobody told me that. And so I grew up and I said, okay, that's how the world is. That's how my teachers are. That's how my parents are, my grandparents that survived the war. And that's how they are. Now, looking back, I see, wow, had somebody explained to me that that's not how it is, but that that's how it is when we are hurt, that's a completely different understanding. It's not the normalization of trauma. And that's why I'm so passionate about collective trauma because all of us, in for everybody who has been born in the U.S., You have been born into a field of slavery and Native American genocide, and same as I have been born into a post-Holocaust society that was there before I have been even conceived. When we meditate, we are sitting in that. And when meditation means the increase of awareness, the increase of embodied light, like enlightenment, like more embodied light, conscious awareness in the world and more contact to potential light, to the light of the higher consciousness, potentiality and witnessing presence and all kinds of presencing states. so. When I become aware, more aware, I become more aware of something. So my radius of awareness is growing. It becomes wider, vertically higher, it becomes more subtle. And so those collective fields play a huge role because we are sitting in them. They are part of our numbness, not feeling, The Holocaust, or 300, 400 years of slavery, depending on how old we are, is is a very important function for our psyche. Otherwise, many of us would go crazy right now. But on the other hand, we are also not aware of all of that. So there is a numbing, a collective absence, that doesn't allow us to feel an incredible amount of pain. But it doesn't mean that it's not here, it's here between us that pain. But our conscious awareness is somewhere else, right now. And I have seen rooms with hundreds and hundreds of people, 1000 people where the Holocaust shadow came up in the room, and, and suddenly we could feel what is all the time here, but super suppressed. And it's there's a collective agreement to keep it suppressed. And, and that's why I thought when when I heard about your course, and I thought it's, it's very interesting, even if for what I'm saying right now, there isn't an immediate solution. We're not looking at, we're not trying to kill the answer, the question with the solution. Um, We're just creating a space of awareness, which I think also, um, Jack and Tara, like the the studying meditation practice within diversity aware or much more gender aware, gender fluid and 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 uh, like different levels of awareness as part of our meditation practice is key. Because we are expanding our capacity to be present in more and more of the world and represent that world in us as intimacy. And that's why I think for us, in in our own meditation practice, the word intimacy and distance is interesting. Where am I intimate with this moment and where do I feel a bit distant? Even if it's just a bit, sometimes it's strongly distant. Where, Where do I feel connected and where do I feel absent? When absent is not wrong, when absent means overwhelmed. I touch an overwhelmed part of myself. And that overwhelmed part can be one year old, can be six years old, or can be from a car accident that somebody had. But the or, and that's I think very important, that our ancestors are not sitting behind us, they are also in us. The ancestors that are separate in space and time are the parts of our ancestry that is not integrated. Because integrated ancestry is also presence. Unintegrated ancestry creates karmic waves. And those waves is what we deal with in our life often, is questions, difficulties, health issues, and, and other things. So I wanted to mainly to summarize what I said, to summarize that I think for us as people that spend a lot of time in exploring consciousness, exploring meditation, awareness, also a more grounded, embodied spiritual practice, which I think uh, a lot of the mindfulness practice is. then Then we also need to see that we become more aware of the normalization of a systemic trauma field that is simply not normal that is wounded and it's good to call it that way and once we can call it wounded out of whichever reason and out of whichever whatever were the circumstances we have a a chance to illuminate those wounds and slowly heal them and be the healing force or the immune system to be part of its healing. And the big part of the healing is the awareness process that meditation and contemplation provides. Because without me being aware of it, I can't heal it. I need to have something that expands my conscious awareness. And I think that's why meditation practitioners are at the heart of expanding where the conscious universe of humanity ends. So the conscious universe, our conscious universe ends. When I was sitting in those Holocaust processes, for example, I could clearly feel that here in the room, n- none of us can go beyond that barrier. Here our conscious universe ends now. And it's good to be humble enough to bow down to the fact that there there's an edge to our conscious awareness that many if many of us share the same trauma field then most probably there is an edge of the awareness that we can bring together but the the humility to accept it is the beginning of an opening gate because i bow down i've once in in uh Nepal, a prayer came to me and one line of the prayer is I am grateful for what I see and I'm grateful for what stays hidden because this is thy will and that's why I'm here. And why because as a spiritual practitioner, I, I might run into the illusion that seeing everything or knowing everything is the aim, or that's where we are gonna go, or that's what would be great, but that I can see that in the not seeing is intelligence, not malfunction, or not, not being able to, everybody's defense mechanism is intelligent and i think if if in in the meditation practice i can find that kind of more compassionate relation to myself that i'm exploring my intelligence not my dysfunction then love can slowly expand into the areas of myself where maybe there's a lack because trauma often creates a lack there's uh, something is missing scarce and um and so, and also noticing when we or our uh, meditation students are touching on dissociated or absent fields, how we support them the best to to notice that and give them tools how to work on that with us or by themselves to come back to connected places in themselves and slowly expand from a resource place. And not stay in that loop in themselves, but maybe we can. I see the times flying. Maybe we can do a short practice together, and that speaks a bit to to the different fields, and um, and then that we have a little bit space for questions afterwards. And I would like, in our practice, we are um, looking. At the coherence of our physical, emotional, mental, relational, and awareness-based field, and um, we can do that together. and And I will guide you through a few questions, and uh, and then we make some space for Q and A's. Okay, so when at first. Let's start with a screenshot of just the way you feel right now. Just a screenshot. Physically, emotionally, mentally. Screenshot. And as you Notice what you find right now. Then let's slow down a bit to exhalations and slowly, slowly sink into the body sensations, into your aliveness. And at the beginning, we just focus on the aliveness, flowing, streaming, pulsing. very present parts of your body. See if you can keep your attention for a few moments just on flow. Flow equals integrated history. And flow we participate in hundreds of thousands of years of living
0: integrated life.
2: So, one bucket of intensity is aliveness, streaming, flowing, sensations. Another area of intensity that we might find inside of ourselves is tension and stress. You can look where in your body do you feel tension, tightness, Or kind of a heightened activation or a stress level. And we just notice, it's nothing to do, just to be aware and feel. And then maybe the last part is areas in the body that are harder, much harder to feel. They're more absent, reduced. I don't feel I have so much access to my body and myself in those areas. And I just notice Then when you switch for a moment to your emotional awareness to see if you can name an emotion, even if it's very slight or subtle, that is present right now. Or if you feel that the emotional field is a bit numb or reduced, then we honor that. And just as a process, how did you switch from your physical awareness to your emotional awareness? What's the mechanism? And then when you switch and you check in with your mental activity Is your mind calm and quiet, spacious, busy, activated circular thinking, inspired And how did you switch from your emotions to your mental activity? What's the mechanism that helps you to sense either emotions or know how active your mind is? And then one more step. What's right now aware of you feeling yourself? I feel my body. I'm aware that I feel my
0: body. What is aware?
2: And as you slowly open your eyes, and you take a deeper breath, if you can extend your self-contact, like how you're connected to your own inner sensations, now to us on your screen. But gently, without, see if, sometimes we open the eyes and we disconnect a bit, or I stay connected, and I extend my sensing to you on my screen. And maybe you can look at a few people on your screen. But get a sense, like through Because trauma hurts self-relation, but hurts also mindful relating. When we can see relating as a constant data streaming. Like when you watch a movie on Netflix, you're streaming it while you're watching it. So when you look now at the screen and you allow your whole body to, look and sense as if your body had eyes all over, you use your entire nervous system to also get a sense of other people's whole body, emotional experience, right? Because the core healing of trauma is in the simplicity, which is not always that simple of I feel you and I feel you feeling me I feel you feeling me that's the core building block of relating I feel how you feel me we all knew how our parents are either sensing us or not sensing us not feeling us as kids. The parental dome of sensing is the foundation of safety. In neuroscience, we called it neuroception. If you feel felt by me, you feel already safer. If you feel that I'm not sensing you, it's already a bit activating. And if I'm anyway hurt already in my safety and security, and a person that doesn't is not really with me is a bit scary. brings up my insecurities. So I feel you feeling me that we can feel each other's nervous system sensing. So when I'm with a group and I speak to a group and my energy field is open, and everybody will feel part of it. The word and the group energy become an interdependent whole. If I'm a bit scared, and I'm a bit defensive, then I transferred it into the group, and then it feels like I'm listening to. And so restoring relational health, and also for people in our Uh, groups and communities, feeling felt, makes a big difference in the sense of safety, how safe a space is being perceived. And it's one of the superpowers to heal trauma, so it's one of the human superpowers, presence and relating. Well, great. I I'm aware that we want to have some space for questions, and we have, I think, another fifteen minutes to go. I think that's Christy. This is a, is this a good moment? It's a, a good moment. Some-
1: yes, it's a good moment indeed. Thank you for that. Uh, Thomas, I want to offer a question that comes from uh, Celine Collins. And Celine, if if you're in this space today, please uh, raise your hand. Celine writes What role do you believe the body has to play in releasing collective or ancestral and individual trauma?
2: Very high. I think. Actually, we can't heal trauma without our body. I think the body is the the anchor of, of energetic transformation. So if I want to, the fragmentation happens in our physical body. And so in the relational space that is able to create a container for the fragmentation and the overwhelm that happened appropriately, There is a deep process happening in the body, in the nervous system, in the hormonal system, in the tissues, and in the organs, that starts a new flow of communication. And in the mystical uh, understanding, what I call inner science, it's that that in the moment trauma heals in the body the body becomes more whole it's like the lights go on in this part of the city that i spoke about so part of my nervous system becomes more illuminated become i i move in again and for many spiritual practitioners we need to ask ourselves did we ever move fully in because some of the spiritual practice is not just transcendence it's incarnating because that's not given just by us being here, that we fully incarnated into our body, so that our energy and the physical body are logged in, and so some some people struggle in their lives, in their real lives, with real life challenges because that hasn't happened fully. For example, through hurt attachment processes, and um, so then embodiment and transcendence are both required, because otherwise sometimes transcendence just reinforces the symptoms of the person's life. So that's why embodiment, and then when the body becomes whole or more whole, then there is one impulse that is often experienced like a deep expansion and relaxation. Then one impulse ripples out into the past, and also starts healing processes in our ancestry, for example. And one impulse goes upwards into our neocortex, into our more full expression, but also into our future. It expands the world for our children. And that's why trauma healing is a lot of learning that we harvest when we do it. So it's, an, it's an, a win-win-win, I think. But the body is super important. I don't think that it can be done without embodiment. Maybe go to the next.
1: Celine. Okay. Um, So I want to go to somebody who is in the course uh, right now. And I would like to invite uh, Liz Wiener to unmute yourself and ask your question.
0: Thank you so much. I'm finding this absolutely fascinating. Um, I have a question for you. I'm in my early 80s. I'm Jewish. My family emigrated from Poland before the Holocaust. I'm asked to deal with the evil of slavery and extinction of Native Americans, and what came up for me was anger that I still haven't solved my trauma around the Holocaust. It's it's there within me, and how to go on to relate to these other traumas that I'm being asked to, and I, I say, no, no, the evil of the Holocaust, I haven't dealt with that yet. How can I go on to these other evils? And How can you ever heal the wound of the Holocaust? How can you ever deal, heal the knowledge of such evil? I don't know.
2: Most probably we are two. (laughs) Most probably we are two (laughs) that don't know exactly how that works, but we know- I can't
0: imagine, how does one cope with the idea of such evil?
2: Right, and that's true. And I think one phase of the healing is that we just honor the enormity of what happened and see if there is a little more space in us to feel. Because like, it's not that we we will ever heal it uh, quickly or we will heal it, it's not about that, but it's about us coming closer to allow like an intimacy again, and it's slow, it's like, I'm not saying it's one 200, but to, to allow a certain intimacy again, that, that we that allows us to feel what the Holocaust means. Because once, once it's so overwhelming that I I am not feeling myself, when I speak about the Holocaust, then, then I know maybe many things about it, but the sense making, sense making is cognition and sensing as one process. And for many of us, I think just thinking of the Holocaust is simply overwhelming because it's so enormous. And 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 there's no there is no good being done with trying to. But what's great is me being at the edge of my capacity to feel. And everything that helps me to make a little step closer to become an embodied witness of the Holocaust. And embodied witness means that I can stay in my witnessing capacity fully embodied, which is very hard because it means that I will start feeling all the pain. I will feel what it means to do all those acts, to do all these crimes. I will feel what it means. And I think we are so far away. That's karma, that, that it takes generations to come closer. It means it takes generations to digest through the individual life stories, the Holocaust enough, that we will be able to come a bit closer to feel the enormity from that you're speaking about. Mm -hmm. That's why it's also very important for you to see, of course, you want to address racism. And of course, you want to address the Native American genocide. And you also carry the aftershock of a massive trauma in your body yourself. And Mm -hmm. That needs to be respected. We cannot be morally obliged, but physically and emotionally not able. We had enough of this because we like so many people went through school experiences or power abuse hierarchies where being in a certain way that is not being ourselves was asked of us. Many children should be in a certain way instead of being who they are when they go through the education system. So trying to do it right is, is not the way, but I'm willing to, but I have a capacity and I need to listen to my capacity. Overwhelming myself with more trauma doesn't necessarily make it better and and that's why i'm talking to both to yes it's it's so enormous that we are just still paralyzed from it and there is a self-regulation that we can apply to slowly come closer into intimacy and i think it's both true at the moment where we are now evolutionary wise and then we will see how we and the, the third part is maybe the more people like us here, pay attention, are interested, and we create the technologies, the social technologies that are necessary to heal trauma on a collective level, that we go into the next phase of healing, which I believe is collective. Then then it may be, you no, know, it might speed up and we will see new phases of it. We will learn it then when it's needed. So these are a few answers, because it's a big question that you're posting. Thank
0: you so much for addressing this, because I didn't even know it was there until I started working on racism and the Native American Holocaust. I didn't even know this was still in me. And I was so grateful to see it, but there was no way to address it in this program. Mm -hmm. And I'm so grateful to be able to address it. Mm
2: -hmm. And
0: I think that also 2,500 of us all over the world Is such an inspiring,
2: amazing thought
0: for the good, for the good. And then the other thing is, um, I've forgotten the actual words I wanted to use, but to stand up and to say no is is ground zero. Mm -hmm. To Mm -hmm. reject, not to accept, and to say no. And even if we're in pain, we have the choice to say no.
2: Right. Thank you so much, and I'm so happy to hear that there are so many people in the program. That's fantastic. It's amazing. And that's exactly what we need. Yeah, very good.
1: Thank Thank you. Thank you, Liz. Uh, we have a question from Niles who writes, Thomas, I feel we are all experiencing a collective trauma based on the global pandemic. I wonder what we can do to cope with an ongoing event more wisely and not just try to deal with it looking backwards in a few years.
2: Yeah, beautiful question also. All the questions. Like, <clears throat> I think two things. I often say we don't have a COVID crisis. We have a pandemic. The crisis is how we deal with it. (laughs) That's the difference. I often say, like, what am I saying? That if you have a river and the river is flowing water, when it snows, the snowflakes drop into the water and become water. When there's a river and it's iced over and it snows, what happens? The snowflakes fall onto the ice and become more snow ice. So experience into an open nervous system becomes part of it. Experience on trauma, pre-existing trauma, it's usually another level of it. It adds reactivity. It adds uh, that we, I or we, cannot respond according to our potential to a situation. Many relationship arguments, you see a five-year-old arguing with an eight-year-old, trying to figure out the relationship dynamic. It's like regressive moments of reactivity. And that means that when COVID as a pandemic, there is a pandemic, But it it also hits us in already pre-existing collective traumatization. So once I know that, then I know, oh wow, I experienced stress, but not all the stress that I experience has anything to do with uh, COVID. There's stress that is much earlier in my life already and COVID just pushed the button. And that's why it's hard for me to, to be in it. So once I know that, and especially in a group that is training intensively mindfulness practices, I can bring mindfulness to how the past is active and it disguises itself as now. I have fears, I have stress, I have panic, I have numbness, I have I see the fragmentation in society. I get enrolled. I also start arguing. I also start arguing about politics or about this or that, or who is right or wrong. And then I see, wow, I'm really enrolled in the fragmentation of our society. I'm also part of that unconscious dynamic. And then, of course, we find the more we are practitioners, we find faster and faster ways back into a deeper inner connection and not. Charging that fragmentation with more energy, but learning how to take energy out of that fragmentation and and finding ways how to be more present to it. And so what I'm saying is, one is the recognition that a part of my reactivity or experience is based on my own past trauma, the second is. That I have strong mindfulness practices to help me to center myself in my experience and want to have that experience. And thirdly is how how can we create, and what you're doing here is perfect, like how can we create relational spaces that hold a certain value of relating or being with life, where we can support each other in that process of digesting the past so that I'm really able to relate to COVID. Because if my trauma, if the Holocaust, or if, the, if other massive traumatizations stand between me and the virus, then it looks like I'm experiencing 2021. But part of my stress is way, 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 way back. There's nothing to do with the pandemic. But I'm, I'm reacting to it that way. And I think that's important, same as the myth, many people say, yeah, there's stress at the workplace. And I would say, no, there's no stress at the workplace. Everybody brings a lunch package of stress from home, from childhood, and then we eat together at the workplace, and then we say, it's so stressful. But the stress is not at work, the stress is in our nervous systems, chronically implanted. And then we create systems that are stressful, and then we create dynamics that are stressful, but that's not the root of the issue and and i think so and and that i notice when i also get enrolled that i'm i become part of the right or wrong voices i'm for sure right and the others don't get it so whenever i see that i get enrolled in that dynamic that i have a way how to reconnect to myself and see that temptation but not to uh, become identified with it. I think that's that's important. Yeah, because otherwise, I'm part of the other ring. And the others are usually far away. And that's, uh, it's not that I feel intimately related and clear. That's different. If I stand up with a no, but I can stay related, it's different than if I stand up with a no and the other one is very distant. Like I'm distancing the other person. So these are practices that I think um are, are some of the core practices that are very beneficial. I know there's so much more to say, but I'm mindful of my time. So I could go on for a long time. <laughs>
1: Thomas, thank you so very much for this teaching. And although we were at time, I wonder, is there anything else that uh, you didn't want to leave unsaid?
2: First of all, I'm very happy that you're all doing that. It's so uh, promising that so many people are studying together to, to teach meditation. As I said, it's a passion of mine, so I'm very happy you're doing it and uh, that this happens and the other thing yes the um i think what i said before that for every every one of us meditation is an entry gate into a participation in reality that has different levels of depth All the great mystics found a gate into a dimension of life that is beyond the regular access code. And being able to participate in that deeper reality means we have to become a different internal environment that can participate in that reality. And I have I often say in our courses that I often say I don't believe that anybody is really meditating, but I believe that meditation comes into many people's lives. That meditation is and somehow it slowly appears in my life through books, talks, teachers, friends circumstances. But meditation is it always was. And it always will be. And many of us that feel called feel the effects of how meditation slowly descends into our life. So this also opens us a bit up to that it's not just like running a marathon. It's like a mixture between commitment and and bowing down to that which descends already into our life anyway and i think that's a beautiful uh, way to disarm the meditator in us and to also be committed to the practice because we are preparing ourselves to receive meditation in 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 our life so maybe these two things um as a final uh, statement
1: Beautiful. Thank you once again. And thank you to all of you who are able to join us live. If you're in the replay, I'm sure I'll be going back in the replay just to catch all the information that I might have glossed over in this powerful session. Uh, I want to invite you to come back next month when we'll be joined by Tara Brock and Conda Mason for the next live session that's titled Compassion in Action. The Movement Toward Plant-Based Eating, and that's going to be held on December 10th. For Sounds True, once again, deep gratitude for you all for this session. I'm Christy Peoples, thanking you for being with us. Take care, everybody.